Our scripture this morning is from um, Acts 16, 1 through 15, and verse 40. From Troas, we sailed a straight course to the island of Samothraki, and the next day to Neapolis. Finally, we reached Philippi, a major city in the Roman colony of Macedonia, and we remained there for a number of days. When the Sabbath came, we went outside the gates of the city to the nearby river, for there appeared to be a house of prayer and worship there. Sitting on the river bank, we struck up a conversation with some of the women who had gathered there. One of them was Lydia, a businesswoman from the city of Thuatera, who was a dealer of exquisite purple cloth and, and a Jewish convert. While Paul shared the good news with her, God opened her heart to receive Paul's message. She devoted herself to the Lord, and we baptized her and her entire family. Afterward, she urged us to stay in her home, saying, Since I am now a believer in the Lord, come and stay in my house. So we were persuaded to stay there. And then in verse 40, So Paul and Silas left the prison and went back to Lydia's house where they met with the believers and comforted and encouraged them before departing. Let's go through a little bit of history about this area that Paul and Silas are going to. According to N.T. Wright, the ancient Macedonian city of Philippi is known today by its Greek name, Cronites. It is in the northeastern part of modern-day Greece. The town was settled in the 4th century B.C. by Philip II of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great. And Philip claimed this city for his own because it had large silver and gold mines. And he named, he renamed the town Philippi in his own honor. I guess you can do that. In 42 BC, the, the plains of Philippi was the site for one of the most famous and important battles in Roman history when Mark Antony and Octavian defeated the Republic forces of Brutus and Cassius, the assassins of Julius Caesar. In Paul's time, the population of Philippi was around 10,000 and was a Romanized Greek city. The language was predominantly Latin, and there were as many as 35 different deities that were worshipped in Philippi. And the church in Philippi would be the first church to be established in Europe and the church that Paul would later write to in the letter of Philippians. So Paul and Silas head to Macedonia because of a dream that Paul has in verse 9. God has forbidden them from going to Asia, which was where they wanted to go, for whatever mysterious reason, but God gives them the green light to go to Macedonia. And so they go and they land in Philippi, which was a territory in Macedonia. And on the Sabbath day, they are looking for a place to pray and a place to worship. So they go find one outside the city by the river in the home of Lydia. Craig Keener, a theologian, says that according to Jewish pietists concerned about assimilation, a minimum of 10 Jewish men was necessary to constitute a regular synagogue and thus indicate a city where Jewish people would be likely to form their own community. So it appears that Philippi did not have the requisite number of men to establish a synagogue there. 
But Keener goes on to say that in places with no official synagogue, Jewish people preferred to meet in a ritually pure place near water for ritual washing of hands before prayer. And this seems to have been a standard practice in diaspora Judaism. And excavation, excavations show the importance of water in synagogues. So the only place that is available to Paul and Silas to worship and pray on this Sabbath is Lydia's home by the river. And I hope that you catch throughout this message that Lydia is the founder of the first church established in Europe. This is what else we can know about Lydia. She's presumed to be wealthy because of the expensive purple cloth that she sold. This was cloth cloth that only the richest of the rich or royal people could afford. She is also not mentioned within the context of being married to someone. She's either single or widowed, perhaps divorced. She manages her own household, which also symbolizes wealth and singleness. And she is hospitable to men she has never met before. She embodies the Old Testament definition of hospitality, receiving and welcoming the stranger into her home. Lydia, who is a Gentile but has converted to Judaism, is leading others on this Sabbath day in prayer and worship. And, and Paul begins to talk to her and telling, about, telling her about the good news of Jesus. And the text says the Lord opened her heart to receive Paul's message. That word heart there encompasses the soul and the mind. It's where the Greek word cardia, where we get cardio. Uh, Lydia's, and, and it encompasses all these things. It encompasses Lydia's thoughts, passions, desires, appetites, affections, purposes, endeavors, her understanding, and her intelligence, her will and her character were transformed in that moment into a new way of seeing the world and being in the world. Lydia was changed. Her eyes and her ears were thoroughly opened after being thoroughly closed. She was beginning the process of transformation. And as a part of her transformation, she offers them the comforts of her home. And again, I come back to this word, persuaded. In the message, the text reads, she said this in a surge of hospitality, and she wouldn't take no for an answer. The Greek word for persuaded here means constrained. We all have someone in our lives like this, right? That, you know, that people that go over and beyond to make us feel warm and welcome and invited. We are with people that, these are the kind of people that make us feel like we are a joy to them. We're not a burden. We're not a hassle. You, you, we know the difference to this, right? To Like, you're speaking with a friend, and you ask them, hey, I, I've got something I'd like to talk with you. Do, would you mind if I stop by this week? And sometime, Or would you mind if I stop by today, and can we talk about it? And, and you have that friend or that someone in your life, and you say that to, and they're like, oh, uh, sure, sure, that, uh, yeah. I, I've got some. let me... Oh, well, you know, you get the point, right? They really don't have time for you. And that's not a bad thing. It's just life. But then we also have friends that no matter where, when, how, absolutely come right on by. Or I can come to you. Anne Lamont says that polite inclusion is the gateway drug to mercy. People that make us feel welcome 
who go to some lengths to make us feel included, these are the very best of us Christ followers. These people get it right. And when we need mercy, they are the quickest ones to give it. They are our Lydia's in this world. We desperately need more Lydia's right now. There really are people who are gifted at making us feel at home. They make us feel like family, like community, like they really, really, really like you. Is everyone thinking of someone right now that's like that in their life? You're never an imposition. You're just welcome. When I was 23, I moved away from my home in Belmont, Mississippi, to Pontotoc, Mississippi, which was about two and a half hours away. Uh, Colby, my oldest, was two at the time, and we didn't know a soul in Pontotoc. We moved there for a job. Uh, So we thought maybe the best thing to do after we got there was to visit a church and maybe get to meet someone there. So... We visited on a Sunday night. This is back in the days when we had church on Sunday nights. And um, there was a lady that looked about my age, and she comes right toward me at the end of the service and shakes my hand, and she says, Hey there, I'm Laura Kimbrell. It sure is nice to meet you. I'm glad you're here tonight. What's your name? I say, I'm Melinda. This is Colby. And she had a little girl that was the same age as Colby, and her name was Tori. And so she invited us out to dinner that night after church. So we go to eat a meal, dinner, and getting to know them a little bit better and was just sweet and just, uh, and it didn't seem fake. It seemed very genuine. And so we went to a burger joint, and if you've known me longer than 10 minutes, you know that I hate mayonnaise. It's important that people that know me longer than 10 minutes know that I hate mayonnaise. It's so important to me. And so it's a burger joint, and I'm not exactly sure what all comes on the burger, so I asked, does it have mayonnaise on it? That's what I always do. And they're like, whatever they say. And she's like, oh, you don't like mayonnaise? No, I I don't like mayonnaise. Oh, okay. So we visit with one another a couple more times, and two or three weeks go by, and she calls me in the middle of the day. We're both stay-at-home moms with our little guys and girls. She says, won't you come over for lunch? Okay, great. So I go over. "What, What can I bring? Not a thing. I got it. So me and Kobe go over there, and the kids are playing, and she, it's time for lunch, and she comes out, and she says, oh, I have tuna fish salad for us for lunch. Is that okay? When I look, I love tuna fish salad. I really do, but I have to make it myself because I have to be the judge of how much mayonnaise is too much. I can't eat somebody else's It just because I don't know how much you put in there. And so I'm just grimacing inside going, oh, no. If this is going to be like soupy tuna salad, I'm going to die. What am I going to do? This is embarrassing. I go inside the kitchen, and she pulls out two bowls and has the bread out, some chips, and some apple juice. And I'm going, hmm. She said, oh, I made you your own tuna salad. didn't have very, just a little bit of mayonnaise in it. She opened that thing up, and y'all, it was exactly as if I had made it myself. It was perfect tuna fish salad. She remembered. I was always welcome in her home, and she remembered things that were important to me. I come from the state of Mississippi, as if you couldn't tell, and one of our slogans has been the hospitality state. 
How many of you knew that Mississippi is at one time known as the hospitality state? Okay, I shared this with my fiance, Terry, and he was like, I've never heard that. You know, like Illinois is the land of Lincoln, and Ohio is what? The Buckeye State. Missouri is the... But Mississippi, the hospitality state? Weren't they alive in the 60s? I'm confused. I could have never said that in Alabama, by the way. Thank you for letting me say that this morning. (laughs) And so the South, in general, has been labeled with this phrase of Southern hospitality. I was even told by more than one person moving to Peoria, oh, it's different up there with them Northerners. And you're not Northerners, but to Mississippi and Alabama, you're Northerners. I'm sorry, Midwesterner people. Those northerners are different. They're not as nice as we are down here. They're not as friendly. It's going to be different. They're going to probably be a little bit rude. Well, you'll be happy to know that I have not met those people yet. People in Illinois have been warm and friendly and hospitable. But those stereotypes remain, right? So this southern hospitality. I read an article entitled, The Birth of Southern Hospitality by Eleanor Rose, and this is what she had to say. It seems the phrase Southern hospitality wasn't used until the 1820s or 1830s when national debates about slavery intensified. For many, the idea of Southern hospitality became a way of defending the Southern lifestyle and a political system that depended on slavery. Even today, Southern hospitality continues to create a sense of solidarity and belonging among many Southerners. The term Southern hospitality is attributed to journalist Jacob Abbott. While traveling through the South in 1835, he coined the term Southern hospitality to describe the way people opened their homes and shared whatever food and drink they had with travelers. Even then, Southern culture focused heavily on etiquette, such as yes ma'am and no sir, holding the door open for women, and the removal of hats upon entering a home. And it also focused largely on cooking and eating. In truth, hospitality was actually an important social norm everywhere during the 19th century. Folks just viewed it differently. Many northern progressives and abolitionists defined hospitality based on their definition of what they saw as the biblical command to be open to differences and to welcome strangers, including runaway slaves. This led to a dilemma for some southerners. It was an easy way to welcome people who were just like you. But true hospitality was and is inclusive. In the New Testament, the Greek word for hospitality literally means love of strangers. We could say that its origins is in human vulnerability, sociality, and longings for community. In our vulnerability, we can admit that we need one another and that going through this life alone is not good or healthy for us. In our need for sociality, we can admit that we need opportunities to connect with one another And sharing a meal is one of the best ways to do that. And admitting that we need community. We need a group of people who can do life together. Good and bad times. A group of people that know us and love us anyway. Hospitality is easy to give. When it's for someone you like. Or someone you want to like you. I am much more inclined to offer you my hospitality if I think you're cute 
or if I believe you are an influential person and I might gain something from you if I'm hospitable. But someone radically different from me, different biblical leanings, different politics, that becomes more challenging. And yet, Lydia was not concerned with those things. Lydia very likely had heard some things about Paul. I mean, he murdered a lot of people, right? He murdered people like her. He murdered Gentiles, and she was a Gentile. His bad press probably did precede him. And yet she would not take no for an answer, persuading him to accept her hospitality. We need more Lydia's in the world right now. One of the directives at Imago is centered around the idea of a generous orthodoxy. It's an idea from a book by Brian McLaren, and it helps us here at Imago to lean into a better way of loving our neighbor and the stranger. Our directive says, we at Imago are committed to a generous orthodoxy under a banner of love and grace. As such, we commit ourselves to faithful reading and studying the Bible, finding new and creative ways to live out what it teaches. The full quote from Brian McLaren is this. We must never underestimate our power to be wrong when talking about God, when thinking about God, when imagining God, whether in prose or in poetry. A generous orthodoxy in contrast to the tense, narrow, or controlling orthodoxies of so much of Christian history doesn't take itself too seriously. It is humble. It doesn't claim too much. It admits it walks with a limp. This is how this community works. We do not pretend that we have arrived at some magical enlightenment and we have all the answers. We do not pretend that the lenses that we use to interpret the book, let me say that differently. I do not pretend that the lens that I use to interpret the Bible is the only right lens. We try to wrestle with these texts and make room for other lenses. This is our community. This is generous orthodoxy, and this is who we are. And just as, as an aside, if you haven't read our directives, they are on our website under the About column. They are beautiful. And, and I encourage you to read those sometime next week. It, that's what kind of sealed the deal for me before I came here. But how do we build community with people who do not read the Bible the same way we do? Who do not vote the same way we do? Same way we do who do not love like we do? Who we have so little in common with? How are we to be hospitable with them? Here's one way, I think. Stop trying to see them as people who need to change. Stop seeing them as people who need to change. Stop seeing them with apologetics in the forefront of your mind. I grew up evangelical. I know a lot of you did too. And we have this notion in evangelicalism, oh, there's my, there's my person. I got to get, get to them. We, we like, I, I got to get them to change. I got to get them to accept Christ and do all the things, right? But I have found 
that that gets in the way of real relationship if I'm viewing you as somebody who needs to change to conform like me. Yes, we want a good life for this person. Yes, we're to still be salt and light to them. Yes, we are still to want them to, to know the good news of Christ and have their lives impacted and changed for it. But, but me trying to get them there? We go off the rails when we think a person is inherently bad and needs fixing, and we are the ones who can fix them. Here's the thing. We are not the ones. We are not the ones. Anne Lamont also says, when we try to see a damaged person as one of God's regular old customers instead of a lost cause, it takes the pressure off everybody. We can loosen our death grip on the person, which usually results in progress for everyone, also known in some circles as grace. People that we are trying to fix because we see them as damaged, they see through it. They really do. They may not at first, but eventually they will. And we lose all opportunities to be in community with them when they see through that. Because here's the truth of all of it. We are damaged too. We are one of God's regular old customers. We could use some fixing too. And we are desperately in need of grace too. Many years ago in my late teens and early 20s, <clears throat> I was going through a very dark period of my life. I was completely away from God. And, and to use some old evangelical language, and I hope you'll give me some grace for using this kind of language this morning, I was covered up in a pit of sin. I was really deep in it. And it was not a good moment for me in my life. But I, th at the time, I was working at a little sewing factory in Tishomingo, Mississippi. I hated it, just so you know. I, and I wasn't any good at it, just so you know. But I had to make money. But I met a friend there, and she was from a Pentecostal background. And she was, and she wore the skirts, and she didn't wear makeup, and she had long hair. She's a beautiful, sweet lady, same age as me, already married. And she knew about this of sin that I was in. She knew most of those details. She never one time told me, oh honey, you've got to get out of that. Let, let's move. We got, you, that's not good. You've you got to stop that. She could have. Probably should have. But she didn't. You know what she did instead? She just liked me. She just liked me. She'd take me to lunch. She'd invite me over to her house. We'd giggle about clothes and jewelry and hair, all that fun stuff. We talked about loving other people the way they deserve to be loved. Her husband was a Pentecostal preacher, too. I forgot to mention that. She would invite me to church. And y'all, I felt so much shame and guilt and ickiness to walk into that church was... It was the last thing I wanted to do. But she persisted. And I went. And when I showed up, she turned around and she saw me and she grinned from ear to ear. She came down that aisle 
and walked back with me and gave me a big hug. I said, I'm so glad you're here. It's going to be so good. Never once did she make me feel judged or condemned or like I was worthless. She demonstrated love and community to me. She saw me as a beautiful person made in the image of God and loved by God and loved by her. I will always remember how she made me feel. Y'all, I don't even remember her name. But I'll never forget her face. I'll never forget her beautiful face. And I'll never forget how she made me feel. She accepted me and she loved me. She was a Lydia to me. And the world needs so many more Lydias.